Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Hey, this is Hugh Blue. Welcome to this edition of the Nonprofit Exchange, where it's a show where we interview thought leaders people who have special expertise to share. Today, we have Amy Eisenstein, and you have a, what I think is a really important topic, how to raise major gifts for annual and capital campaigns. Amy, there's probably a couple of people on the network out there that don't know your name yet or know your work, so tell us a little bit about you. How, what, what have you learned what do you bring to the table in your work and then what's your passion for doing this? Yeah, so I've been doing this for a long time, over 20 years now. I started my fundraising career in small and large nonprofits. Actually, I spent a decade working as a development director. So on the front lines, raising gifts of all sizes from all types of donors for all types of organizations. Uh, before becoming a consultant. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about the show about why people do this, what's their passion. And I have to say that, you know, I don't know that anybody grows up dreaming of being a fundraiser. I certainly didn't. And, you know, most people fall into it one way or another because they're passionate about a cause or they want to change the world in some way. And honestly, uh, working in different nonprofits, I've just found that the best way to help that organization is to raise a lot of money. And that is how organizations, you know, a variety of ways, but that's certainly one of the ways organizations help fulfill their mission. And so to me, uh, that, that's why I do what I do. Ah, and you know, when you're talking about it, I can see this little this little gleam in your eye and this little enthusiasm in your spirit. It's more than a little, actually. <laughs> and, and so you actually, I do find that people who are very good at, at your field um, enjoy what they do because they see the value in connecting people that have some, some wealth to making a difference with that wealth. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I do think of myself and fundraisers that I teach to raise money and major gifts specifically as matchmakers. They are matchmakers between, like you said, people who have the means to invest and the causes that those people are passionate about. So, you know, uh, I've spent the last more than 10 years, you started to ask me how I got into this, uh, you know, so for my consulting, the consulting part of my career for the last decade plus, I've been writing, teaching, training, speaking, mostly about major gifts and capital campaigns because those are the two real drivers of fundraising for organizations um, after annual fund and base for support. So we're gonna dig into this a little more, but um, people can find you at capitalcampaigntoolkit.com, is that right? Yeah, that's one of my websites. So if they're interested in a capital campaign, capitalcampaigntoolkit.com. If it's more major gifts, their interest, then it's amyeisenstein.com. E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. 
That is correct, Amy. Uh, yes, uh, amyeisenstein.com. Yes. Yes, those are two, and we will have, we will have those on the page and on the the podcast where you can read the content. We transcribe all of these interviews because we don't want to miss a thing that people tell us. So I've worked with um, all manner of nonprofits for 32 years. And many times they're a startup where they're very, very small. And that's why I founded Center Vision Leadership Foundation is to provide some of those resources for board development, strategy, leadership development, all those things that make your work successful. <laughs> and um, so I, I hear an awful lot. People have this dream and they want to launch it. And then they say, well, I can't ask people for money. So why is that so, um, why is that so hard for people as a barrier, thinking there's something, there's something taboo about, about the subject of money, and it's not really asking for money, is it? Well, yes and no. I mean, we live in a culture where it is taboo to talk about money, uh, more so than all, all sorts of other things that maybe should be taboo. <laughs> Um, but money is a tough topic, and we were grown up with all, raised with all sorts of negative connotations about money. Money doesn't grow on trees or uh, greedy, and there's all sorts of negative connotations about money. And so it is really, really hard, I think, for a lot of people to think about asking for money. And one of the things that I'm focused on in my teachings is that you're not asking for yourself. And the reality is that you're not even asking for money. You're asking for impact. And so if people can focus on asking for impact, like asking a donor to help make sure that um, 10 kids get off the waiting list for an after-school program, then you can have a conversation about how much that costs. But you're not asking specifically for money. You're asking for impact. And that's actually much easier for many people to do. That's a paradigm shift, isn't it? That's That's a paradigm shift. You know, we're not asking for money. We're talking about the impact of your gift. Is that right? Or did you? That's, you know, did that's you absolutely me? right. Yes, I think a paradigm shift. Yeah, I think we're losing at each other a little bit. I don't know if our internet connection is so stable, but um, yeah, I think that exactly right in terms of paradigm shift. I always talk about a change in attitude. People need to change the way they think and not think that uh, you know fundraising is negative. Uh, get rid of all the negative associations you make with fundraising that you're twisting someone's arm or that you're guilting someone into it. But instead, fundraising is about inspiring people to invest in important causes. Um, we happen to have a, some professional fundraisers watching right now. They're interested to see what's going on with you. Um, you've got quite a reputation. I get your emails, I see your social media, and I see your presence online, and you're you're very gifted at presenting yourself in a way that's it's it's proper. It's it, but it's it's in a manner where people really know why they need you. Um, so before we end this um, interview today, I'm going to ask you about the uh, the toolkit. But let's start with um, we're talking about an an annual and a capital campaign. That's in our title here. So maybe we ought to distinguish up front, what, what's the difference in those two? 
Yeah, so I think a lot of people are confused about the difference between annual and capital. Annual, anything that you're raising for annual fund is money that you need to spend in this fiscal year, in this budget, and it's short term, it's for one year. So if we're gonna use an analogy of a house, um, your annual fund expenses would be the heating, uh, the electricity, grocery bills, those types of things. So program salary, same thing, rent, heat, electrical, those types of things. Capital are for longer term needs. And so when you think about a capital fundraising for a capital campaign, it's sometimes it is a building, often it is a building, and that's actually how we traditionally think about capital, but it can also be for startup long-term programs and services, equipment. Um, so anything, so back to the house analogy quickly. So uh, if your house needs a new roof or a new boil, hot water heater, something that's gonna last 10 years, uh, that would be capital expenses, but it also can be endowment, it can be scholarship, it can be um, anything that gets your program from one level of programs and services to the next level. So um, you might think about fundraising for a capital campaign when you're really ready to take a leap to the next level of service. So uh, I guess the point is that you can fundraise with major gifts for an annual fund or an annual campaign or a capital campaign. It's just a matter of what you're gonna use the money for. Um, is, is there a, a, an issue about timing with either one of those, time of year, time in the life of the organization? Is there a timing issue with either or both of those? I don't think so. I mean, an annual fund starts and stops every 12 months, depending on what your fiscal life cycle is. Um, you know, your fiscal year may not be the same as what a donor's thinking about in terms of taxes or year end. So be aware and conscious of that. But um, no, I, I think that a capital campaign probably wouldn't happen until an organization is at least a few years old um, and they have some annual fundraising and programs and services under their belt. But uh, no, I, I don't think there's a timing issue there, except for that a campaign is multi-year, a capital campaign is generally multi-year, and an annual fund is a, in a single year. I, I was seeing a, um, uh, an interview with a politician, one of our congressmen in DC, and um, the subject of funding came up, and he was saying from the minute he's in office, he's in an active campaign to raise the money for his next election, and this was him. And um, he said they, the, the party requires that he raise this much money. And, and so from, and, and I think part of the timing is that we realize that we're always talking about the value proposition of what we bring to the world. And we're always telling people what the impact is of what we've done so far. And then we've kind of gotten to the place where we can make that ask, which I said we didn't make, but we gotta, we gotta say this is what we need and, and make a specific positioning. So talk about the value proposition that attracts different funders and then how do we have this conversation with people to really understand what they're interested in? Because we, we really don't want to be barking up the wrong tree, so to speak. We want to be talking to people that will support our cause. Yeah, absolutely. So 
One of the questions that I get asked most frequently as a consultant is, can you help me find major donors, right? Can you help me find new donors? And the issue that organizations face is that they really don't understand that their donors, their best major gift prospective donors, potential major gift donors for their organization are already supporters of their cause or in their local community or in their sphere of networks. Um, never are major donors sort of people that are out there, which is a, a myth, a misconception that organizations think that if we only had access to you know, Bill Gates or Oprah Winfrey or whatever philanthropist you might have in mind, that we'd be fine. But the reality is that organizations that raise major gifts know that those major donors are coming from their own community of existing donors, of existing supporters. And so, you know, so if you're starting there, then the value proposition is that those people you already know support your cause at least a little bit. They may be small donors, they may be low level donors, but what you're looking for is people who have a passion for the mission of your organization. And so, you know, one of the ways, in addition to looking in at your existing donor database for people who support you, who have been longtime supporters, is that you uh, go on a listening tour and talk to the people in your community, your donors, your supporters, and ask them why they care, what difference it makes, how they would feel if you weren't here. Um, and so that you learn what the value proposition is for them, how important your cause is to them. And that uh, usually that is what stems, uh, starts the donor relationship. Well, two things have come up in um, listening to your words that want to define what a major gift is, explain that. And then, then this, this listening tour, that's fascinating. So it's the concept, I got an idea from the name, but explain how it works. So major gift and a listening tour. Yeah, it's funny. Usually I start with defining a major gift, so I'm glad you asked. Um, and, and the reality is that a major gift is different at every organization. And if you're looking at it from the perspective of a donor, it's different to every donor. And so let's look at it the perspective from, from the perspective of a nonprofit organization. So to me, a major gift at an organization is needs to be defined and can be defined in a few different ways. Uh, one is, if you have no other way to define a what a major gift is at your organization, then, then what I want you to think about is when you open a check from a donor that comes to your annual fund and it causes you to jump for joy and run down the hall and tell your colleagues, I mean, clearly that's a major gift for you. Um, but all kidding aside, what, what a major gift is, I want you to think about if you spend the time to go out and talk to a donor and sit down for coffee um, and ask for a certain level gift, is that worth your time? So I would ask you to think about, is it worth your time to go out and ask a donor for $1,000? Is that a good use of your time? Um, for some of you, it's gonna be absolutely, that's a great use of our time. $1,000 is a big gift for us. We don't get tons of the gifts of that size. Great, that's a major gift at your organization. Um, if you're thinking, no, we get enough of those in the mail, online, through events, those types of things, 
well, then maybe a major gift at your organization starts at $5,000 or $10,000 or $50,000, depending on where you are. Um, you know, when I worked, I worked, one of my jobs was at Rutgers University before I became a consultant. And there we talked about a major gift at the $25,000 level. Well, right down the road from Rutgers is, of course, Princeton University. And, you know, they didn't start talking about a major gift until 100000 or more. And this was over a decade ago. I'm sure it's a million dollars and up now. So you really need to be aware of who's in your database, who's on your board, who you have connections with. Um, and, that, and, and the donors that are currently in your database, that will help define what a major gift is at your organization. But it's really any gift to me that, that moves the needle, that makes a difference, that really has an impact. Uh, that's a major gift at your organization. And, and that's a good lesson not to overlook anybody because some of the least suspecting people have means. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, you know, the, the really important key people to look for in your database are those who have been loyal donors, who have given uh, once or twice a year or many times a year over a period of years, three, four, five, ten years, um, at any level. So I don't care if they've given $50 a year or $100 a year. If they're loyal, I want to know who they are, what their capacity is. Maybe they haven't given any more because you've never asked them for any more, but they're extremely loyal to your cause and your mission. Yeah, I, I worked for a mega church in Atlanta one time, and the preacher had made 14 lunch visits to raise $18 million, and he had a specific ask. Mm. And then he read in the paper um, months later, after construction started, that one person had given a large sum to a university and they named the building and he called the guy up and says, I'm sorry, I asked you for too small an amount. <laughs> that was, that was uh, the other end of being bold, but, but underneath that, there was a relationship that had been built for many, many years, well, 20, 20 years. I'm glad you say that. I think that's a really important point because sometimes organizations will look at their donors and say, well, you know, my donor, XYZ is giving a million dollars to the hospital down the street, but only giving a thousand dollars to us. And I'll say, well, right now you have a thousand dollar relationship with that donor. You don't have a million dollar relationship with that donor. And what you do over the coming weeks, months, and years uh, to build that relationship is up to you. And maybe someday that donor will give you a million dollars too. But right now that's not the, you know, that's not how they see themselves interacting with your organization. Well, sometimes um, it, it, it seems that uh, people of substance want to test you by giving you a smaller amount. Sure. It's sort of like your first time getting a grant from an organization, they'll give you a smaller amount. Yeah. And then if that goes well, they'll consider you for a larger amount. So the, the due diligence. Um, so, Talk about building the relationship from a smaller donor to a larger donor. What are the elements that, that help them become more worthy in their, in their eyes, help you become more worthy in their eyes? Yeah. Well, let's go back quickly, and I think this is addresses this to your question about listening tour. Um, I like to have development directors, people who are starting to get into fundraising and aren't really sure how to go about raising major gifts. To me, the first visit with a donor is a listening tour. So it's up to the development director to learn as much as they can about their donor, 
where their interests and passions might overlap and cross with the organization. And so, you know, it's, it's not, I used to think when I was just starting getting into fundraising, I used to think it was my job to go out and tell donors everything I knew about the organization, facts, figures, stories. I would uh, ramble on for 45 minutes or sometimes an hour. Well, how do you think the donor felt after I left? I mean, they're bored, they tuned out, right? You, you can imagine. Nobody wants to be lectured at for 35 or 40 minutes, even though I was telling them these really passionate stories about the organization. That wasn't the point of the meeting. Um, and, and I missed the point and I didn't get big gifts until I figured out that fundraising is about good listening. You know, there's an expression in fundraising that you listen your way to a gift. And I think most people don't really understand what that means, but it's about learning enough about the person sitting across from you to understand what would really make them feel great. When, when fundraising is done well, the donor feels great about their gift. Um, so I want you to think when you're asking for a gift, if the next day the donor is saying, "Ugh, you know, Amy really shook me down. She guilted me into doing this. I'm never going to pick up the phone when Amy calls again. Or are they going to say, you know, I, I did the most amazing thing yesterday. Yes, you know, it has nothing to do with giving away $50,000. It has to do with the, the kids I'm helping or the people I'm feeding or the animals I'm saving or the diseases I'm curing. And I feel really good about it. So you know that you've done fundraising right when you've listened your way to a gift so that you can connect what the dots in terms of what would make the donor, the person in front of you, really grateful that you helped invest their money in the community in the way that you are. I was part of a church staff and they hired a fundraiser to come to a capital campaign. And um, somebody said, I'm going to give till it hurts. And he said, no, give until it feels good. To your, to your point on the donor should feel like they've done something significant. Um, so so the, um, the listening campaign, um, so you're, who do you listen to? <laughs> yeah. So you listen to your donors, your, your biggest potential donors, right? I always tell development directors that part of the challenge when I go into an organization and I see that they're not raising major gifts or they're not raising major gifts well, is that they're so often busy culting, cultivating, building relationships with all their donors or trying to that they're really not making headway with anybody. And so my best advice is to pick your top 20 prospective donors. Figure out who in your database is most likely to give you another big gift or, a, or, a, or significantly increase their gift, right? We're not starting from scratch. We're not starting with new people. We're starting with your existing donors and looking at them and saying, how can we engage them more fully. How can we, um, so like I said, pick 20 people for the next six months and get to know them. Go out and listen to their stories, um, get to know why they give, 
why they started to give to your organization, why they care about your cause, and what would motivate them to give more and get involved in a bigger, deeper way. What's the percentage of the conversation that you're listening and, and they're talking? What percentage do you listen and what percentage do you talk? Yeah, so I would say that if it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation, just two people, that you as the fundraiser should be talking no more than about 30% of the time, 35% of the time max. And the person sitting across from you should be doing 70% of the talking. And the way that that happens is that you ask open-ended questions. Um, and so you don't want to ask, do you like our organization? The answer is yes or no. That's a closed question and doesn't lead to conversation. But you can ask, what do you like most about our organization? Or what would you like to see improved at our organization? So ask an open-ended question. My rule of thumb is that if you find yourself talking for more than five minutes straight, um, it's time to stop and ask a question because you're, you're, the person sitting across from you is about to zone out. Um, and so really, don't think of it like a presentation. You're not going in to make a presentation. You're going in to have a conversation. I guess part of that is how you set up the appointment. Um, sometimes I've gone to be listening with a person and they've surprised me and said, well, I wanted, I wanted you to make, uh, make a request. Mm. Ask for the sale. <laughs> and well, it's the first time. Yeah, you should be prepared to do that, right? So listen, in general, you don't want to ask for a gift on the first visit. However, when a donor says, how can I help? Or what do you need? Or what do you want? What are you here to ask me for? You need to be prepared to answer that question. Don't say, I'll get back to you. That's, you know, that's not a good answer. You haven't done your homework or your research. So know what you want to ask them for and what you, you know, if they say, how can I help? You say, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> We'd love your help, right? These are the, this is the thing we're looking for. This is the thing we're hoping you can, you'd consider, right? Well, the development people have this stage they call cultivation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so explain that a little bit so we're on the same page. And then, and then see, my, my mama taught me to be a gentleman and those certain things you do on a first date. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> certain parameters, but... But you're so right. I was not prepared for that that question, so it hit me broadside. So, so the cultivate. There's different stages in building relationship, and so I've just become acquainted with that recently in my work with the Lynchburg Symphony. The, the cultivation. So, would you explain that in development terms? Sure. So, there are four steps in the fundraising cycle. Uh, cultivation is step number two, but let me put it in context. So when you're raising major gifts or quite frankly, any type of fundraising, this fundraising cycle applies to or steps apply to, the first is donor identification. Who are we gonna raise money from or who might we raise money from? Number two is cultivation. As you mentioned, that's the relationship building phase. That's when you get to know the donor, the donor gets to know your organization. Um, step number three is solicitation. That is the actual ask. 
And step four, of course, is stewardship. That is the follow-up, the thank you, the gratitude. So let me give you two quick examples of how this fundraising cycle works. And then we can talk a little bit about cultivation. Um, so let's say that you are selling a gala ticket or a raffle ticket or a golf ticket, any kind of ticket. And you ask your board members, help me fundraise and sell these tickets. So they identify, one of your board members identifies their next door neighbor. They don't need to build a relationship. That's step number two, because they've lived next to this person for 20 years. They go next door, they knock on the door, they say, will you buy this raffle ticket? The person says yes. They say, thank you very much. The whole, all four steps, the whole process is done in six minutes. That's one type of fundraising. Then you've got major gifts. If you wanna raise $10,000 from somebody, let's say, you may need to really think about, in terms of step one, donor identification, who can and might give our organization $10,000? Who do we know in the community that could do that? Who's connected to us? Who's passionate about us? So it might take a few committee meetings, some research, some looking in your donor database over a few months of uh, who's gonna, who's gonna, who could we potentially raise $10,000 from? Step two is cultivation. So now you've got a list of five or 10 or 20 people and you say, okay, now we need to build relationships with these people. We need to introduce them to our organization. We need to give them a tour of our organization, maybe if that's appropriate at your uh, organization. We need to introduce them to the executive director or the CEO. We may need to introduce them to some clients. We need to go on a listening tour and learn about them. We need to invite them to volunteer. That's what cultivation is about. It's a, a building a relationship between a potential donor and the organization. So what are you gonna do to engage them, to get them involved, to get them to care more about your organization or cause? And once you do that for a few months, it's time to ask. You sit down in person, if you're raising a major gift, $10,000, you sit down in person with them at their home or office, preferably, and you say, all right, here's the impact that we think you wanna have, and here's what that impact costs, can you consider that, right? So we think you wanna help find a cure for cancer, we're hiring additional researcher, we're hoping that you can help contribute to that, to supporting that person. So, you know, whatever your ask is gonna be. And then if they make the gift, or even if they don't, you're gonna thank them, you're gonna follow up, you're gonna let them know if they're, how their gift was used. That's the stewardship part. So that part, that kind of fundraising might take a year if you're in an annual campaign and you're raising major gifts. So donor solicitation takes a few months, or donor identification, cultivation. Solicitation actually is only one moment in time. So through that whole year process, the solicitation was only a 45 minute meeting. Um, and I, I have a graphic that I put up when I'm, when I'm doing other speaking or when I'm doing a board retreat, I facilitate a lot of board retreats. And I show that the ask is only, you know, 45 minutes out of a year long process. And most board members and staff members for that matter, um, don't understand the fundraising process. And there's so much more to fundraising than just the ask. It's being smart about it. It's in some sense of the word a smart ask. Mm, yeah. Articulating that very carefully. 
Um, so you mentioned the board. Now, um, it would occur to me that part of your listening tour, if you're new, would be to listen to the board as well to see who they know, what experiences they've had with donors. Uh, elaborate on that if you think that's a part of the listening tour. Oh, absolutely. I think you should be meeting with your donors and getting feedback from them and recommendations and advice, at least on an annual basis. If you're, and especially if you're new at an organization, you be, should be sitting down with every single board member to ask them why they serve, why they got involved, how they got involved, what their experience has been like as a board member, what they'd like to do. Um, so yeah, you should definitely go on a listening tour with all your board members. I know with um, grant applications, uh, they want to look at the board engagement and the board uh, donor consistency. I mean, they want to see 100% donors. They want to see uh, active board members. Mm -hmm. So um, we like to think, executives like to think that the board members are going to be part of the fundraising campaign. That's sort of idealistic thinking, but there is a part they play in all of this. And um, they, they, people, as I said at the beginning, a lot of people have this thing about money. They don't want to ask their contacts about money because I don't want to be begging. So there's that whole paradigm shift. So how do you empower the board members to find a role in this whole continuum of giving? Yeah, well, the first step is that, that everybody needs to give, right? That's the first step in creating a culture of philanthropy, um, ensuring that your organization can raise major gifts. The board needs to lead by example. And that means that everybody needs to make a meaningful and significant gift for their own personal budget. Now that's different for everybody. For some people it might be $100, for other people it might be $100,000. Every board member should be making a, a significant and meaningful gift for them. Um, so that being said, the next step after everybody gives is that everybody needs to help with fundraising. Now, 10 years ago, I would have said that that means that every board member needs to ask, and I really do not believe that to be the case anymore. If you look back at our four steps of fundraising, every board member needs to do something to help with fundraising. For some, it might be helping with making thank you calls or sending thank you letters. That's the stewardship and the follow-up piece. For others, they might be able to help identify donors and introduce the organization to their network, but they don't wanna ask, and that's fine too. For others, they can help with cultivation and that relationship building, so bringing people on tours, going to meet individual donors and, and helping with those listening tours. And then a few board members that are good at it and interested in it can help with the actual asking. Hmm. Hmm. That sounds like you've been in the real world. <laughs> um, so you focus a lot of time and attention in your, your writing, books and blog and speaking or raising major gifts. Why are major gifts important? And, why do nonprofit leaders have such a hard time raising major gifts? Yeah, so I think organizations, nonprofit leaders have such a hard time raising major gifts because of this stigma, this, this thing that we grew up with that it is not polite to talk about money and they're really unfamiliar and uncomfortable with talking about money 
also frequently those of those people working in the nonprofit sector now this isn't always true and i might get uh dinged for saying something like this but people in the working in the nonprofit sector usually aren't wealthy themselves and so the idea of money makes people uncomfortable the idea of asking for more money than you could give yourself is a really hard concept for lots of people to understand just because you couldn't personally give ten thousand um, dollars doesn't mean that other people wouldn't happily do that and so i think it is a hard bridge sometimes uh, to pass to to get to that place where you you know just get to the point where your cause and your mission and your programs are too important for you not to be out there asking for major gifts. Um, you know, one of the reasons that I think raising major gifts is really hard is because it's the really the only type of fundraising that's not driven by deadlines. And so with grants, you know what you're supposed to do. There's research, there's an application, it's straightforward, there's a deadline, you do it. With event planning, most people are familiar with fundraising events. They have experience going to events, planning events. Um, there's a deadline, the event's coming up. You know, with major gift fundraising, nobody's waiting at the other end of the phone for you to call. You can put it off until the cows come home. Nobody, you know, unless there's some sort of internal accountability system there's no deadlines and so and it's uncomfortable so i think that's why organizations have such a hard time with it because it takes a real discipline to do it and uh, psychologists call it the money shadow um one of my colleagues and friends uh, david dr david gruder organizational and developmental psychologist um has written courseware on on the money shadow it's it's the the negative stuff we tell us tell ourselves about money and actually when you go to talk to somebody that works against you because they can sense something about it um, so there's a there's a mental uh, mindset about this work and we believe in it we dedicate our lives to it but then we dumb down and um, dan palata has this ted talk on the way we think about charity is dead wrong and it's that whole whole paradigm of nonprofit. And we pay people way too little money and drive them way too hard and burn them out, which is a huge, huge crisis. Yeah. Um, and so what about, and he talks about some of the myths. One of them is the myth of the overhead. How often does that come up in a donor conversation with major gifts? You know, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. I think that really savvy donors and philanthropists are really well-educated at this point on overhead. Uh, some people still don't understand the need for it. I think it's a, something that we in the nonprofit sector have a responsibility to educate people on that, you know, th that there is a cost of doing business, both in businesses and in nonprofits. And so without overhead, people are expecting us to solve the world's biggest problems. Homelessness, poverty, you know, disease, education, all sorts of huge issues without having the tools, adequate tools and resources and staffing to do it is just um, 
you know, I think it's probably why we are still where we are and haven't gotten farther is because too, too many people believe that um, this poverty mentality that a, that a nonprofit should be impoverished. But to me, I want the best people uh, working on solving the world's biggest problems. So I think we need to pay them a fair wage and give them tools and resources and up current computers and all sorts of uh, tools to help them succeed in solving the world's biggest problems. So I, you know, I think, I think overhead is absolutely paramount. You know, without overhead, you can't do an analysis of your programs and services so you don't know if they're working or not. And so sometimes, you know, donors will favor an organization because that organization is saying we don't have any overhead or we only have 5% or 7% or whatever it is. Well, then, you know, when was the last time you evaluated your programs and services? Do you even know if they're working? So to me, I'd much rather see an organization that's being run efficiently, well, effectively, effectively, um, and, and does spend money to attract the best talent and uses the latest resources. Now, in thinking about the major gift and the, the capital campaigns, um, I know that um, grant writers who are very effective build in an administrative cost to administer the grant. Otherwise, it'll cost the organization money to deliver whatever service it is. Um, and some grantors are even including what they call capacity building to, to do some infrastructure uh, repair <laughs> improvements. Um, yeah. So when you're getting, like you mentioned, the major capital campaign for a building, well, there's this major maintenance thing. Is there part of the campaign that's major maintenance accrual account that goes, goes into the bank? I mean, how do you think about the liability we're creating with that? Yeah, I mean, I think organizations need to plan well and articulate their needs adequately to donors, including the cost of fundraising, which is overhead. And so whenever we're doing a capital campaign budget, we always build in 10% at least for a fundraising budget or a budget for the capital campaign. Because to, to think that organizations can raise five times, 10 times, 20 times what they do on an annual basis with no additional staff or resources is not realistic. And so it is important to explain to donors you know, that, that there is a cost to raising money and to operating programs and services. Absolutely, that's a realistic, and that's just being upfront about it and knowing how to talk about it without feeling embarrassed or make excuses for what is really good stewardship. So the, the stewardship is the fourth piece. Um, and to me, that means managing the money and reporting on it. But also the way you set it up, it's sort of like a continuation of the post, the cultivation post donation. Sure. And our, our sponsor, who you hear about for this, this um, podcast is WordSprint, who does mailing mail mail campaigns and two and a half million mail campaigns over 20 years he sees donations go up because it's the right message to the right person in a regular right rhythm 30 30 30 10 as apparent so it's telling people what's happened with their money is like post cultivation you're cultivating really for the next next stage of giving to continue that person's relationship with that so talk a little more about that fourth stage am i am i hearing you right am i 
reading into what you're saying. No, absolutely. That's right. Anything else you want to add to that? No, I think that's good for now. I think people forget, we, and I'm as guilty as any, uh, we get a donation, thank you, send a nice letter, and then it's out of mind when we really yeah. want to continue talking about the good work we've done with that money. Money has has transmuted into other energy. And, yeah. and provide... That's right. I mean, I always say that it's important. Well, there's the rule of seven thank yous. I don't know if seven's the actual right number, but that's the rule. And so you should be thanking people in multiple ways by from various people. So a board member can send a thank you note. The executive director can make a thank you call. The development director can send an email. But the bottom line is that you need to thank in the way that you asked. So if you sat down with someone and asked them for a gift, then um, in addition to the phone call and the thank you letter and the, and the email, you want to sit down with them again, two, three, six months later, let them know how their money was used and thank them again in person, if that's how you asked um, in person. Always, always you wanna tell people how their money was used. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I hadn't thought about that seven ways and I hadn't thought about a personal visit, especially if it's a major gift. Absolutely. If you took the time to ask in person, you better take the time to thank in person. And you may have noticed that I said, when you're asking for a major gift, I like to do it in somebody's home or office where they're comfortable. Lots of people think that you're supposed to ask for a gift in a restaurant. But to me, that is a horrible place to ask for a major gift because there's interruptions, distractions, there's people right next to you at the table, you know, there's the ordering, but you can thank in a restaurant. So after you have the gift and you're going back to tell people how their money was used and thank them again, you can take them to a thank you lunch. That's the time to take somebody out to lunch. Not when you're asking for a gift, but when you're thanking them. They're comfortable there. Mm-hmm. At their home, that makes that makes a huge lot. This just this is this interview is chock full of really good ideas. Um, so, what are some capital campaign tools that nonprofits can apply to raising major gifts? And I know you have the toolkit. This is a um, this isn't a selling interview; it's a teaching interview. However, I don't know anybody who's listening to this didn't want to ring your number up and talk about engagement because you you got this you got this down. You're the queen of fundraising. Um, so the you have a toolkit, but what major tools do people need generically? And then you want to tell us a little bit about your toolkit? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So I think there is a fair amount of overlap in the way that you identify donors, cultivate them, solicit them, ask for a gift, and steward them. The four things we've been talking about in major gifts on an annual basis and for a capital campaign. But there are tools that are used traditionally in capital campaign fundraising that absolutely can be applied to major gift fundraising for annual funds. And two of those tools that I would mention are something that's called a gift range chart and a depth chart. So the gift range chart is something that tells us how many gifts at what levels we need to get to a certain goal. So in a capital campaign, if you're raising a million dollars, we'll start with a small round number. Um, you might need, you would need one gift of 200,000, 
and two or three gifts of 10,000 of, I'm sorry, 100,000 and so on and so forth. So you would know your gift range chart tells you exactly how many gifts at each level you need to get to your goal. And there's no reason that you shouldn't use a gift range chart in your regular major gift fundraising for your annual fund. Let's say you wanna raise $100,000 in major gifts annually. You could apply the same principles and use the same type of tool. Now, the second tool is called the depth chart. And that actually adds individual specific names to each level of gift that you need. So let's say in my example, you need a gift of, excuse me, $200,000 and you need one gift. So the depth chart would be where you actually put the potential donors names down and say, okay, these are the two people we know who can and might give us a gift of $200,000. So we're gonna put their names connected to that $200,000 gift potential um, on that depth chart so we know who we're gonna ask this year for that size gift. So those are the two tools that I would highlight. I think they're you know, roadmaps to a capital campaign. Those to me are the, the two of the key tools to a successful capital campaign and they can easily apl be applied to a regular major gift campaign as well. How does your mental attitude help with all of this? Because you've, you've put some positive energy on this person can give this. And there've been you know, historic um, authors and researchers and, and speakers, uh, starting with Napoleon Hill that I know, but Jim Rohn and, and, and Tony Hopkins, uh, Robbins and uh, some others that have talked about how our mental attitude actually helps things happen. Yeah, so you were breaking up a little bit, but I think you were asking about how the attitude of the asker impacts the donor, is yeah. that? Yes. Yeah, that's the gist of it. Um, so, I mean, to me, I think it is all about attitude. I actually have a keynote that I give called Happiness, Habits, and Major Gift Fundraising, Strategies to Survive and Thrive. Um, because I do think that your positive attitude really significantly affects and impacts the way you're able to fundraise. And one example I give is how you ask a question. And so, and now, now I'm going to forget it because I'm on the spot, but it, it's something about, you know, will you consider a gift or, uh, you know, what would you like to do versus will you like to do something? So, um, oh, I know, sorry, it just came back to me. So calling a donor on the phone, um, one person says, do you want to meet? And the donor says, eh, no, I don't really want to meet. But another fundraiser says, when can we meet, right? It's a totally, it's just a teeny tiny shift in the language, but the outcome is very different. So do you want to meet from when can we meet, right? Um, so, so all sorts of uh, subtle language changes and attitude, um, you know, going from assuming that the donor does want to do something versus the donor assuming the donor doesn't want to do something. You know, fundraisers in the field um, say, oh God, I, you know, I don't think they want to talk to me. Nobody picks up the phone calling is so awful. And other people say, you know what? 
uh, the donor can't wait to talk to me. They're just busy and they have other, other things going on. But when I get through, it's going to be amazing. So, um, you know, I don't think that was as articulate as I'd like it to be, but that's my, my long rambly answer. <laughs> well, don't, don't ask a yes or no question would be what I'm thinking away. And I, I get a little more cheeky. I say, would you, can you meet Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon or do you have a better, a better day? I just I just go ahead and put it into some context so uh, um, so that they could be that could be yes or no but can we meet next week? Um, that's also when can we meet next week? Is is how you're saying do it? Okay, I'm a slower. I'm getting there. Um, so any more um, you want to say about when an organization is ready to consider um, a, a capital campaign? Or have you said have you said most of what what you want to say so far? Uh, yeah. So uh, unfortunately, the sound was breaking up again. Uh, I think you're asking me for last thoughts. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that in a minute. But but in terms of um, can you hear me now? Yeah. It, we I have a little signal that says that I'm sure it's talking about my internet, not me. It's unstable. <laughs> <laughs> so I might be unstable too. But any more you want to say about? Um, timing. When when should an organization think about um, a capital campaign? Yeah, so I think that when organizations, organizations should think about having a capital campaign when they are ready to move their programs and services to the next level, to really make a leap in what they are able to provide and accomplish. Sometimes that comes in the form of needing a new building. Sometimes it doesn't. So I want organizations to think about capital campaigns as capacity campaigns. Um, are you ready to take your programs and services to a, a, new, a new level of service, a new geographic area, a new expansion of how you provide your services or who you can provide your service to. That's when it's time to really seriously consider a capital campaign. Well, this has been really helpful. I'm gonna do a sponsor message and then come back to you for a final thought before I close out this so wonderful, helpful interview. Our sponsor has said before is WordSprint, S-P-R-I-N-T. Word Sprint. Bill Gilmer and his team will help you stay in touch with your tribe. It's the right message, 30% to the right person, 30% to the right frequency. You need to keep top of their mind. This is what we're doing. And then 10% it needs to look good, but not too fancy. WordSprint.com prints nonprofit performance magazine and um, helps us stay in touch with our tribe. Mail gets on their desk, they keep it, they look at it, and then you trigger an email at the same time. Hey, Joe, look at that mailing I sent you. There's page four, there's something very important I want you to see. So Amy Eisenstein, uh, capitalcampaigntoolkit.com, or Amy Eisenstein, E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. -E -E you can find Amy there. Um, and you have a capital toolkit. What do you what do you want? Um, can they find that on the website? And then what's your final thought you want to leave people with? Yeah, so I'd love to, uh, for people anybody considering thinking about a capital campaign. I hope that you'll visit me at capitalcampaigntoolkit.com. 
and you can sign up for a free strategy session to discuss your campaign. Um, it's a new innovative online platform that provides all the templates, resources, guidance, and support that you'll need for a campaign. Uh, so I hope you'll visit me there and, and sign up for a free strategy session. So what do you want to leave us with, Amy? Yeah, you know, if you are struggling with major gifts or not ready, or haven't gotten into major gift fundraising yet, it is time. Uh, you're going to be left behind in the fundraising world, and that is really where the future of fundraising is. So there's actually a free major gift challenge on my website with the amyeisenstein.com website. And uh, so you can sign up and do one thing. It's one thing every single week, no matter if you're having a gala or your grant deadline is due, but moving the needle by doing one thing in each of the four steps we talked about, either identifying donors, cultivating them, soliciting or stewarded, stewarding them. One thing every single week um, to raise major gifts and the major gifts challenge on my website walks you through exactly what to do. It's free. Um, and tells you how to raise major gifts. Well, Amy, thank you for such helpful information. Um, you can see the transcript on the nonprofitexchange.org. It's on the, the community for community builders. The number one thing I hear from leaders, despite, despite all the tactical stuff, they want a community where they can talk to like-minded people in the same struggles, in the same seat. It's kind of lonely sitting inside that. The, the chamber of the nonprofit leadership world. Uh, clergy and nonprofit leaders burn out at a high rate because we work so hard. And sometimes it's less thank, thankful from other people than we would like it to be. So the community for community builders, when you go to the nonprofit exchange, you'll see a blue button and that says join. You can check out what it's all about. And my gift to you, you take the dollar trial of the community, you get my $100 program, the five pillars of building a successful organization. So Amy, thank you for being on the Nonprofit Exchange. We're here every Tuesday, streaming live on Facebook, and it can be found on podcasts, on iTunes or Stitcher, or any kind of smartphone that you might have. So you can listen to these interviews while you're traveling, while you're driving, whatever. So we'll say goodbye for this version of the Nonprofit Exchange. Thank you again, Amy. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>